reading this evening is from uh, the book of John, chapter 1, on page 1063 of the Church Bibles, starting from verse 14. That's 1063, John, chapter 1, from verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. Oh, good evening, and uh, thank you, Natalie, for reading. Thank you for our band for leading us in worship. For the, thank you for those who are enabling me to be heard. Um, and we're in John chapter 1, uh, which is on page 1063. Uh, let me pray. Oh, dear Father God, we just thank you for this wonderful time that we have these past uh, two or three weeks particularly have focused upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to this wonderful passage in John chapter 1, we pray that you will help me to explain clearly, to uh, share what I believe you've uh, given to me to share Father, help us to be attentive. It's a very familiar passage, but we, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to grasp the truth once again. And perhaps there's something new you want to teach us through this part of your word. Father, please do help us. Please help us to be attentive. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was preparing um, for this, I was uh, reminded about the the wonder, really, of having four Gospels, um, four uh, men inspired by God, but writing from a different, uh, distinct perspective to a different uh, audience. And they each look, looked at the character of Jesus from a different angle. Uh, Matthew portrays Jesus as the king, Mark as the servant, Luke as the perfect man, and John places his emphasis on Jesus, his deity, the fact that he is God. Without any one of the Gospels, our appreciation of Jesus' character and of his life and ministry would be incomplete. And these different perspectives are most noticeable in the three accounts we have of the incarnation of Jesus. Yes, we only have three accounts of Jesus' incarnation. Mark opens his Gospel with the spotlight on John the Baptist, and uh, he introduces us to Jesus, not in Bethlehem, but at the river Jordan, as he is baptised, signalling the commencement of his public ministry. 
But in Mark, in, in his gospel, Matthew provides us with a genealogy from Abraham through to Mary. It is the gospel that we have the record of the wise men visiting and worshipping Jesus to present their gifts uh, as they worship Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, goes further back with his choice of genealogy. It gives us the record of Joseph's descendants traced back to Adam. And in Luke's Gospel, there's no mention of the wise men, but we do have, of course, the shepherds. Um, Matthew and Luke spend about 40 to 50 verses uh, telling us about the story of the birth of Jesus. And here in John's Gospel, uh, John allows himself one-third of a verse, a mere ten words for his account. Well, it's not an account, but it's a wonderful statement, isn't it? In uh, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Very simple, very, well, I was going to say very simple, very profound. What a profound statement. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It was the original intention um, to cover the prologue of John's Gospel, the first 18 verses over three Sundays, and there was a change of plan, and um, I decided uh, verses 14 to 18 was the, the part of the passage that I should focus on. And then I realised uh, that I couldn't really ignore uh, the first 13 verses. Um, so I'm just going to pick out one or two things from the first uh, 13 verses, but then we will come to focus particularly on verses 14 to 18. And uh, verse one, verses 1 to 3 are also profound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John takes us back, really, to Genesis chapter 1 to affirm three truths, vital truths, uh, some of which are a stumbling block to some people, including JWs. But the first truth is that Jesus has always existed. From the very beginning, he was not created. And many people think, Jesus came into existence 2,000 years ago uh, in Bethlehem. But no, Jesus has always existed from the very beginning, far beyond creation. Um, Jesus was there. The second truth is that G John asserts the truth of Jesus' deity. He was God. He was with God, the Father, but he is not the Father just as the Father is not the Son. The Father and Son are one God, two persons in the one Godhead, with the Trinity being the third person, uh, with the Holy Spirit being the third person in the Trinity. And thirdly, the third statement we have in verse 3, through him, through the word, all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Everything that has been created has been created through Jesus. 
Nothing has come into existence without him. Excuse me. And the Apostle Paul affirms this in Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. It's been suggested that John may have started his gospel in this way in response to Mark's gospel. Mark had written his gospel 30 years earlier and uh, I mentioned that Mark starts the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah and he is referring to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The thought is that John may have wanted to assert the fact that the real starting point of the gospel could be traced back to the very beginning, even further back than Abraham or even Adam. But why does John introduce Jesus, as he does, as the word? The word, or or in Greek, logos, was common in both Greek philosophy and Jewish thought of that day. In the Old Testament, for example, the word of God, the word of God is often personified as an instrument for the execution of God's will, as it was when he brought the world into being. God spoke the world, spoke creation into being. He spoke and there was creation. But there are other examples, especially in the Psalms. In Psalm 33, we read... By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So John is pointing his Jewish readers back to the Old Testament where the logos or word of God is associated with the personification of God's revelation. And in Greek philosophy, logos was used to describe the intermediate agency by which God created material things and communicated with them. It was like a bridge between the transcendent God and the material universe. But John goes beyond the familiar concept of Logos that his Jewish and Gentile readers would have had. He presents Jesus not as a mere mediating principle like the Greeks perceived, but as a personal being, fully divine, and as we shall see in verse 14 in a moment, yet fully human. Also, Christ was not simply a personification of God's revelation, as the Jews thought, but was indeed God's perfect revelation of himself, but in the flesh. Um, Most of you will be familiar with this prologue, And as you look through verses 4 to 13, your mind will immediately turn to verses and passages in the Gospel where John expounds on the statement made here in his prologue. One commentator has said this prologue, verses 1 to 18, is a bit like a foyer uh, before you come into the main uh, auditorium of the Gospel. So there are several references in that first part I'd just like to mention three of them. Uh, In verse 4, we look in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
And then in chapter 5, verse 26, we have this verse, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life. So John, later in his Gospel, picks up something uh, from this prologue, an initial statement. And then in verse 5, we read in this prologue here, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we're all familiar with what John says later in his Gospel about the light. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 12, of course. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's wonderfully constructed, this Gospel, of how um, John, in just 18 verses, makes a number of references to, um, to themes that he will pick up later on. And then the third one I'd just like to point out is in verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And we all recognise immediately uh, what Jesus said, the way what he said to Nicodemus in John uh, chapter 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Well, eventually, um, I got to the starting line of our main passage, and uh, I'd like to focus on two statements that we have here in verses 14 to 18. And the two statements are, the word became flesh, and we have received grace. So firstly, the word became flesh. This statement is at the very heart of the gospel, that the word the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and took on humanity. One commentator has noted that flesh speaks of human existence in all its frailty and weakness. Isn't it astonishing? It is to me astonishing, even after 50 years or so as a Christian, to think that God should go to such lengths to reach out to people who would otherwise perish by virtue of their sin. But there are those who would argue that in coming to earth to take on humanity, Jesus simply ceased to be God and became a man, that he shed his deity. No, that is not true. He became man, but he was still God it, may, it is a difficult concept, but, he, but Jesus had those two natures. He was both divine and human. And there are at least two reasons why we know this is true. And they're both very clear statements in verse 14. He made his dwelling among us. He dwelt among us. More, more literally translated, this word would mean the word pitching his tabernacle 
or living in his tent amongst us. It's a reminder of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting where God met with his people before the temple was built by Solomon. But perhaps more significantly, we know that the word of Jesus came to earth as God because of the name given to him. How many times over the last, over this last month, have we heard that name here in this church? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was given that name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in the person of the Son came and dwelt among us. And the second reason um, is there in verse 16. Like, uh, no, sorry, in verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. But surely that is not true for us. We have not seen his glory. As believers today, we have not seen his glory, have we? We were not there. We did not see Jesus. So we haven't seen his glory. But what was and is Jesus' glory? We know that his glory did not rest with, his, uh, with being physically attractive. We read in Isaiah that he had no beauty or majesty to attract, us, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So it sounds as though he didn't have style. He didn't have what it requires today to be a, a star in the film industry. It's hardly likely that he had the style and charisma to be a celebrity in any field today. He could have walked along a road uh, before he became known and nobody would have given him a, a glance or a, would have, may have well turned the other way. So his glory did not lie with his physical appearance. So did it lie with his power, his amazing power to heal and to perform so many amazing miracles? Was that the source of his glory? I don't think so. People were intrigued and they were fascinated. They were keen to see him perform the miracles. Some were more interested, of course, in their own healing. But the Gospels do not lead us to believe that multitudes became true disciples on account of his miraculous powers. Indeed, one of his greatest miracles was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And you may recall what transpired after that. It caused the Pharisees and chief priests to start conspiring to have him put to death. They weren't. Um, they didn't see the glory in his miracles. Now, Jesus' glory lie with his spiritual and moral beauty that shone through his teaching and through his acts of care and compassion. And it still shines through the gospel in God's word today. And Satan knows that to be true. And that's why Satan's absolute priority is to blind people's minds, not their eyes, for it is with our minds that we believe. Very familiar verse um, from Paul in 2 Corinthians. The God of this age 
uh, 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It is only by God's grace who opens our eyes to this truth that we, um, when we are born again, uh, see the glory of Jesus. Satan is desperate to keep people blind. So the word became flesh. And secondly, uh, the phrase I just want to uh, touch upon in verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ we see the glory of God. The glory of God in Jesus did not come to consume us, but it came full of grace and truth. I would focus on grace because that is where John's focus is. In the whole of his gospel, the words truth, true and truly feature more than 50 times. And then he also uses those words truth in his uh, epistles. Grace does not appear once rather than here in the prologue. And how many times does the word grace appear in the Gospels? One other time, uh, one other occasion in Luke where they speak of Jesus growing in favour but also in grace uh, as in his teenage years. But focusing on verse 16, what does it mean that out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given? The grace already given was the law with its sacrifices announced by Moses. What new or better grace does Jesus bring? It's the offer of complete forgiveness for every sin through Christ's sacrifice of his blood. Every time we hear this truth, we should respond with a wow. And what is the fullness of Jesus from which this grace comes? We read in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The fullness of Jesus Christ is God himself. That is why all of God's grace and truth is seen and heard in Christ. The passage in Colossians goes on to say, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. That is saying that God, the creator and ruler of the universe, lives in those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let me just uh, let's take a moment to reflect on what grace is. Um, this is how uh, Packer, Dr. Packer, uh, summarizes it. The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and in Indeed, in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who only deserve severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. Demerit and severity are not words that we normally use. This wasn't written a year ago. 
written 50 years ago. But we understand what Packer was saying. And he continues, to the New Testament writers, grace is a wonder. Their sense of man's corruption and demerit before God and the reality and justice of his wrath against sin is so strong that they find it simply staggering that there should be such a thing as grace, let alone grace that was so costly to God as the grace of Calvary. Do we find it staggering that there is such a thing as grace and it required Jesus to surrender his life at Calvary? Calvary was necessary, of course. People today question why God had to allow his son to suffer the most horrific and brutal death. Why was it necessary? It was necessary because sin has, has to be punished. It would be a denial of God's holiness and righteousness to allow sin, which he hates, to go unpunished. His justice demands punishment. He cannot possibly say, let's forget about it. It doesn't matter. Just move on and try not to keep sinning. At the cross, grace abounded and truth and justice were upheld. It could have been different 2,000 years ago. God could have made his dwelling among us for a very different purpose. He could have called time on his creation, which would have been entirely justified. And he could have come to judge, to condemn, and to avenge. Of course, it was always known from his word that that would not happen. It was not his plan for that time. But it is his plan for the future. We have, may have no reason to think that Jesus will return in, in 2024. But we have no confidence that Jesus will not return in 2024. What do I want us to take from this evening into next year? If you are a recipient of God's grace, I want to encourage you to do three things. Firstly, to use and slightly adjust the title of a, a song that was a favourite of mine at one time, I want to encourage you to never lose the wonder of God's grace. And if your wonder of God's grace is not what it used to be, please dig into God's word and with God's help and perhaps with the help of a friend too, rediscover the wonder of God's love that sent Jesus to the cross for you. Secondly, I know some were not warm to this encouragement, but please have a deeper, deeper compassion on those within our families, in our circle of friends, and those, even those neighbours we hardly speak to, who ought to dread Jesus' second coming if they accepted the reality of it. Let, us, let our compassion, our deep compassion, lead to action to share the gospel and to pray and thirdly, may I go off on a tangent and ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 on page 1179. Um, whether you do that or not, I'm, I'm going to, and I hope you will follow me. Many of you are. Um, but actually, Philippians chapter 2 is quite a, a parallel passage uh, to John 1. 1179, I think I said, yeah. Um, now, as I was studying John 1, my mind was constantly thinking of Philippians 2 and verses 6 and 7, 
also speak of Christ's incarnation. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In human likeness. You'll be very familiar with Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, Paul urges the believers to have the same mindset as Christ. And in verses 1 to 4, he gives practical examples of what that might mean in our relationships with others. I like to read those four verses. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. May I encourage us all, uh, as we rejoice in God's grace and as we give thanks for all his blessings, to have the same mindset as Christ and to ask him to use us to bless others. You may wish to read these verses over this coming week and think how you might respond to Paul's encouragements. Let that be a hallmark of our church through 2024, that we might not look to our own interests, but to look to the interests of the others, that we might be a blessing uh, to others within our, our fellowship. Uh, back to John 1. My final word is for any who've been rather confused by what I've been saying. That may well be all of you, of course. But there may be some whose eyes have never been opened to this profound truth that God, through his Son, came and dwelt among us. His reason for doing so was to give the right to be a child of God to everyone who welcomes him and believes in him, receives God's forgiveness because Christ himself took the punishment uh, that, we, uh, that they deserve. And no child of God need fear the day when Jesus returns to earth as judge. They will be safe with God for eternity. If you're not a child of God, I do urge you to be ready for that day. And not only to be ready for that day for eternal salvation, that's crucial, but to enjoy all the blessings that come from being his child. And uh, if there's anyone here who's unsure of what that means, so please, even this evening, begin to explore that, what it means by asking questions of someone here. In a moment, we will sing, at least here as the body of God's people, our final carol of 2023. That will be in a couple of minutes. Before then, I'd like us to just reflect on some words of a hymn that's come, I've rediscovered in recent weeks. Coming up on the screen, uh, just take a couple of minutes to think, uh, read and think on these words, four verses, uh, to reflect upon them, reminding us of God's grace, which is so rich and free. And then in a couple of minutes, the band will come and uh, lead us in our carol. Thank you.